Shut up and sit down. You're listening to The Bridge. Keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello everyone, you're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. A lot of basketball to talk about and whatever else I might have up my sleeve on episode four of The Bridge. Well, we've almost finally reached the end of wrapping up the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament. We've narrowed it down from 68 teams to the final two, and you really couldn't ask for more better teams to be in the national championship game with number one Duke facing off against number one Wisconsin in what begs to be a magnificent matchup on Monday night. As you can see, I did not mention Kentucky as one of those two teams to reach the national championship, even though many people did think that they would get there and finish off that undefeated season after winning 38 straight basketball games. It appeared that they could be invincible, but unfortunately for them, they were not. They were a great team. They were an unbeaten team, but they were not a perfect team. And there were some flaws that they had, both offensively and defensively, and Wisconsin was able to show that in their game on Saturday night. But we'll get into that game. We'll talk a little bit about the Duke-Michigan State game, and we'll preview the matchup that we will see on Monday night. Duke facing off against Wisconsin in a rematch of an earlier game that they played in the ACC Big Ten tournament when Duke was able to win by 10 We'll talk a little bit about what both teams can do to get that win and bring home a national championship come Monday night. So first, let me get started with the first game of Saturday night, and that was Duke facing the seventh seed in Michigan State, and Duke was able to come away with a 20-point victory basically putting away the game in the second half. A boring game, if you will, probably the most boring game Duke has played this tournament except for their opening round beatdown against a 16 seed. They were really able to play a flawless game on both ends of the floor, offensively and defensively, shutting the Spartans down on both sides of the ball. But it was Michigan State that got off to the hot start, making three early three-pointers by a gentleman with the last name Valentine. So he got off to a hot start with those three early three-pointers to put Duke down 14-6, to which was their largest deficit in the tournament up until that point. Duke, however, responded, and I was worrisome as a Duke fan, that it was possible for them to get off to a slow start against this Michigan State team. They have been known in the past to get off to a slower start, to start whatever game it may be, whether it's a regular season game or an ACC tournament game or the main event in the tournament. But luckily, they went on a 14-2 run. They took a 20-16 lead. They built that up to 28-20 with about 4 minutes and 30 seconds to go in the first half and ended with a 22-6 run. 
And it was a quick role reversal for Michigan State, who started the game 5 of 7 from the field, including 4 of 4 from the three-point line. Then they just made 3 of 20 field goals. They went 0 for 5 from 3. They didn't shoot a free throw until three minutes were left in the first half, and Duke really took that momentum into the second half. Michigan State didn't score a field goal in the final six minutes. Duke's run ended at 30-11 to at the end of the first half, and they held Michigan State to just 30% from the field. Heading into the second half, Duke had yet to lose when leading by double digits at the half. They hadn't done so since December 20th in 2007 against Pitt. So things were looking good for the Blue Devils. Duke pulled out to a 17-point lead five minutes into the first half. Jaleel Okafor, Justice Winslow, and Quinn Cook, two Duke freshmen and their senior point guard, had 32 combined points at one point to Michigan State's total of 31. And there weren't many points to really get out of your seat and cheer as a Duke fan until Grayson Allen shot a deep two from the left wing that bounced right back to him. He rebounded his miss and went up and threw it down emphatically. Got his bench riled up, got the crowd riled up for Duke, and that put the Blue Devils up 19 Grayson Allen, of course, an All-American that won the All-American dunk contest last year by jumping over his current teammate, Jaleel Okafor. So the man's got hops. Even though he's only about 6'4", he can really get off the ground. And that was basically the only jump-out-of-your-seat moment for the entire game. Duke really took control and managed to continue dominating in the paint. They ended up shooting 50% from the field. The lead got no closer than 13 in the second half after that big run. And one of the major stats was Duke being able to get to the foul line. They made 11 more free throws than Michigan State even attempted in the game. Duke shooting 37 total free throws from the charity stripe. And Duke shot its lowest three-point attempts in any of the tournament games and only made two for the entire game and were still able to come away with a 20-point win. They were just far too dominant in the paint for the Spartans, who decided to not double-team Jaleel Okafor. That's one of the things that coaches look at on their scouting reports going up against that Duke big man, whether or not you should double-team him or if you have enough players that will be able to just guard him one-on-one and will leave the other players to stick with their mans. Michigan State decided that they weren't going to double-team him often, but their big men did get into foul trouble early in the first half. They ended up putting in a third option to guard him during the first half, and he was just able to dominate. He finished with 18 points. Justice Winslow, who really carried Duke in the Utah and Gonzaga game in his hometown of Houston, finished the game with 19 points and 9 rebounds, just missing out on his third double-double in the tournament this year. For Michigan State and head coach Tom Izzo, a disappointing performance after having that underdog role in the tournament, really making a name for themselves in the Big Ten tournament, getting to that championship game, and just narrowly losing to Wisconsin. Michigan State looked like that UConn team of last year coming into the eight seed. They actually had 
very eerily similar statistics when it comes to the teams that they were able to beat, the points that they scored, and the runs that they were able to go on. Both teams ended up beating two, three, and four seeds, and it looked eerily similar that it might be a case where Michigan State would take down that number one team to get into the championship game, but it ends up being the worst loss in Michigan State tournament history. And when you look at the lineups for both teams, it seemed that Duke had four of the five best players on the floor when you're talking about just straight-up talent with Justice Winslow, Quinn Cook, Tyus Jones, and Jaleel Okafor. They have Trice as their real only other go-to guy for Michigan State. And it showed in the waning moments when Michigan State really had no answer or anyone to take the ball to the rim and challenge those Duke big men for the entire game. For Duke head coach Mike Krzyzewski, this is his ninth trip to the NCAA championship game. Two of his four championship wins actually came in Indianapolis. So he's looking to hopefully get his third in Indy come Monday night. Coach K is now also 9-1 and all-time against Michigan State head coach Tom Izzo. That involves a 3-1 and record in the tournament and a 2-0 and record now in the Final Four. For Tom Izzo, it drops him to a 2-5 and record in the NCAA tournament semifinals. He now has five losses in the semis, which is the second most of all time, and he was unable to get that Cinderella run and championship for the Spartans, who have yet to win a championship since that 2000 squad. So after that Duke game ended, you were just hoping that Wisconsin and Kentucky would give some sort of excitement, much like their game in last year's Final Four, when Harrison was able to hit that game winner and send Kentucky to the championship game against UConn and send Wisconsin home, drastically disappointed. That game had to serve as some motivation for them. Players going into the game said their motivation really just stemmed from the fact that they wanted to win a national championship. It didn't have as much to do that they would have to go through Kentucky to get there and that Kentucky had beaten them in last year's game. It didn't matter who they were going to play. Their main goal is to get a national championship. So coming into the game, the storylines were amazing. You have the AP player in the year in Frank Kaminsky for Wisconsin. Kentucky with its 38-0 record trying to go undefeated and get to the championship game to play against Duke. Wisconsin was just too much for Kentucky. They had success on both sides of the ball and were able to close out the game on both offense and defense and eke out a 71-64 victory and get back to the national championship game. This was an amazing game from start to finish And it was Wisconsin that took the early momentum, pulling away to lead by as much as nine. For the Badgers, one of their star players, Sam Decker, did not shoot in the last eight minutes and 41 seconds of the first half. And in that time period, Kentucky was able to claw its way back, tying the game at 32-32 at the two-minute mark. The Wildcats end up going ahead 36-34. It looks like they're going to take that two-point lead and momentum into halftime, but Wisconsin was able to tie things at 36 with a jumper just in front of the three-point line to tie things up at 36 into overtime. In the first half, Kentucky ended up shooting 60%. 
but they got out-rebounded and only had one offensive rebound themselves. Wisconsin ended up with 11 second-chance points on the offensive glass, and though that might not end up looking like much in the box score, when the game is over, it did lead to a lot of momentum for the Badgers, and they were able to stay in the game heading into halftime. They took that momentum coming out into the second half. They end up going up by 8, 52-44, with 14-41 left in the game. Wisconsin comes out firing 6 of 7 from the field. Eventually, Kentucky battles back like they did earlier in the first half. They trail by 2. It goes back and forth. Things eventually get tied up at the 8-minute mark. And then one of the first big questionable calls came into play. Wisconsin hit a three to get the momentum back, but were charged with an offensive foul when a guard who made the pass for the three ended up running into Harrison. They get the offensive foul. No points there on the board. Kentucky then hits a layup and goes up by two and pushes that lead to four, which capitalized on a 16-4 to run by Kentucky. Wisconsin was unable to score for six minutes, and momentum really did appear to be in Kentucky's favor. Up four with under six minutes remaining. We've seen this so many times from Kentucky where they might have struggled at some point early in the game, but were able to find their momentum and really get their offensive game plan where they wanted to see it late. And they've been so great at closing out basketball games. It appeared that was going to be the case. Then one of the more questionable calls of the game happened with Wisconsin's Nigel Hayes, who had the ball under the basket with the shot clock winding down. His original layup shot gets tipped. He gets the rebound back, and it looks like it was a clear shot clock violation. The ball still in his hands when the shot clock expired. And it appeared that he just kind of threw it up for a layup, knowing that the clock had expired. And, you know, he kind of just throw it up there, and it happened to go in. But the referees didn't make the call that it was a shot clock violation. So Kentucky goes crazy. It's not under two minutes left in the game yet. So they're unable to review this call. I believe there's around 2.30 left in the second half. The game ends up getting tied, and the Badgers luck out on that opportunity. They end up going ahead by three with a three-pointer by Decker. They put together a 7-0 run. Kentucky, on the other hand, did not show that tenacity that they have all season for closing out basketball games. As I mentioned, they have that four-point lead with around five minutes to go. I don't know what Coach John Calipari was thinking on the Kentucky end as far as what their offensive attack would be. It seemed like they were content with holding the ball, getting into their offensive sets incredibly late in the shot clock, and really slowing things down to give Wisconsin the opportunity to play hard defense at the end of the shot clock and the Badgers did. They forced three consecutive shot clock violation possessions on Kentucky's end. Kentucky ends up with air balls and poor shots and dribbling the ball off their foot for a turnover. They just looked awful down the stretch when it came to putting the game away and having that dagger shot to really put Wisconsin on the fence. It did not come 
And it was confusing to see this team that had so often taken over games late and knew how to push the right buttons and knew who to give the ball to when a shot was needed. They went away from their post game. Carl Anthony Towns has been a dominant force for Kentucky all season and had done significantly well in the game against Wisconsin. And he perhaps could have given them that big bucket underneath to at least get them those two points. Willie Cauley-Stein really didn't do much on the offensive end, and his defense wasn't really that great either. And one of the reasons why he's in the lineup so much for Kentucky is because of his defense. And if you're not going to get that effort from him, there's really no point in him being out on the floor. That's why he was not for most of the second half. Now, aside from those shot clock violations, I mentioned that Kentucky was not going down low into the post on their offensive possessions. Twice, they ended up running this four-low type offense where one of the Harrison twins would get the ball in a one-on-one opportunity trying to take his man to the basket and either draw a foul or perhaps make the shot. And Kentucky tried that at least twice, and it ended up in shot clock violations or poor shots and turnovers. And it was another question mark as to why that would be the play call in that situation. Now, there's been a lot of reports from some of the sideline reporters that were close enough to hear what was being called on the Kentucky bench that Coach Calipari was adamant in getting the ball down low to Towns and really working things in the post. But it seemed like the Harrison twins wanted to take the game over and really tried to play two-on-five basketball. Now, this is taking nothing away from the Harrison twins because last year it seemed one of them was making the game-winning shot throughout the entire tournament. They can make big shots, and they've made big plays in the past. It just didn't seem like this was the time to do so, and it really cost Kentucky the game when they were unable to close the game out. Wisconsin, much like Kentucky and much like I've mentioned in previous podcasts, is a great basketball team when it comes to closing out games. They're great at the free throw line when fouled late. They know how to drain clock and run their offenses to the end of the shot clock and really eat up a lot of time. And that's just what they did to close this game out. They hit big free throws down the stretch. They led 68-64 with 12 seconds left in the game, and it looked to be over at that point. Kentucky calls a timeout with about eight seconds left to go after that timeout, and the play call was a deep, deep three-pointer from Harrison that came up short of anything, an air ball to end the game. Wisconsin ends up getting the rebound, knocks down a couple more free throws, and they end up winning the game by seven. Kentucky misses seven of its last eight field goals. Wisconsin, on the other hand, closes the game out with a 15-4 run and out-rebounds Kentucky 34-22, which is one of the most surprising stats of the game when Kentucky has been so dominant on defense all season long and might not necessarily have a great shooting night but was able to control the offensive class. They didn't do either of those things against the Badgers and end up going home and having their season end 38-1. and Kentucky was also the first undefeated team to lose in the Final Four since Duke knocked off UNLV in 1991. For Wisconsin, 
their second championship game in school history, their first coming all the way back in 1941, and the AP Player of the Year and most recently named Naismith College Player of the Year, Frank Kamitsky leads Wisconsin with a double-double, 21 points and 10 rebounds in the win, and has just had an incredible tournament up until this point. Now that we know how both teams got to the championship game, I wanted to take a little bit of a look and recap what we can expect on Monday night and what both teams can do to give them the best chance to take home a national championship. We have two storied coaches, of course, in this game. Coach K will be going for his fifth national title, which will rank him second all-time in national championships, of course, trailing John Wooden, who has 10 and probably will never have that mark beaten, especially with how difficult it is to even get to, say, the Sweet 16, Elite 8, or Final Four with teams losing players and losing coaches and the competitiveness of the sport. I just don't see that record ever falling, but it would mean a lot for Coach K And this would perhaps be his most impressive win of the five. If you're looking at the seeds and the records of the teams that he's previously beaten in the past. In 1991, for Coach K's first national title, after beating UNLV, they beat Kansas in that championship game. Kansas was the third seed of the tournament and finished with the 27-8 overall record. That next year beating the Fab Five, Michigan in the championship. Michigan came into the tournament as a sixth seed, ended with a 25-9 and overall record. In 2001, when Duke took down Arizona, the Wildcats were a two seed and finished the year 28-8. and And in 2010, we remember that Cinderella run for Butler for those two years there. They came into the tournament as the five seed, and finished with a 33-5 and overall record. And you look at Wisconsin now coming into the game with a 36-3 and record. At least statistically, it would be the biggest win for Coach K if you want to look at records and seeds facing the number one seed in Wisconsin. On the Wisconsin side, you have Wilkes University's favorite alumni, Bo Ryan, who has won four championships. He's also going for his fifth championship, but his four came in Division Three. Still nothing to be ashamed of. Anytime you win a championship, it's impressive, and he was able to have a couple undefeated teams while coaching at the D3 level. Now, I mentioned that these two teams had already played. They did play in December, and Duke was able to win 80-70. to And that game, of course, some things happen that you just aren't going to see on Monday night. Duke shot 65% from the field. Sam Decker was, was hobbled. He was hurt. He didn't play very well at all. And Wisconsin at home surrendered 80 points, which is just something that they don't usually do on their home floor. Also for Duke, Rashid Suleiman scored 14 points the second most points for Duke in the game. When Duke went to a smaller lineup, he really stepped up. Unfortunately for Duke and for Rashid, he's no longer on the team after being dismissed a couple months ago, which has led to the emergence of some other Duke players that I'll get to in a minute. 
The game was also a coming out game, if you will, for freshman Tyus Jones, who took over the point guard role from Quinn Cook coming into this season. And a great show of the competitiveness of Quinn Cook as a senior, allowing Tyus Jones to take that role and step in and filling in the two spot did Cook a great leader. And he's probably their most valuable player, not so much statistically, but just what he means to the team as a leader to have that veteran outlook on things and to just have him be able to calm the guys down when there might be a lot of pressure or when the game may seem to be out of hand. Cook is the guy you go to for that and can also step up for the big shot. But as I mentioned, Tyus Jones in that game, 22 points against Wisconsin. He also had a great game against Michigan State. Those two games really set the standard for what people could expect from him throughout the season, and he certainly hasn't disappointed. Jaleel Okafor, the big man down low, 13 points. Quinn Cook had 13 points as well, and it was a quiet night for freshman Justice Winslow. He had just five points. Matt Jones coming off the bench had just three points. And Grayson Allen, who I mentioned earlier in the show, didn't even play because Solomon had came up so big. The big men, Emil Jefferson and Marshall Plumley, also didn't get much playing time either. But those two should have a pretty big impact come Monday night. On the Wisconsin side of things, Kaminsky ended up with 17 points. As I mentioned, Decker was hobbled, had just five points. Their big scoring threat came from Trevon Jackson, who finished with 25 points. He's coming off a nagging injury as well entering this game, but he seems to be getting back to where he was as a player. So that's great news for the Badgers, and they could look for him to give back what they're used to seeing from him when he's healthy. And I mentioned Kaminsky and Jaleel Okafor. It's going to be a great battle for both those guys going at it down low. You have the AP Player of the Year, the Naismith Player of the Year, going against the ACC Player of the Year in Okafor. Both guys can give you a double-double on any given night. And as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be a matter of whether or not Wisconsin is interested in double-teaming Jaleel Okafor or letting Frank Kaminsky guard him one-on-one and just trusting that his defense and veteran leadership as a senior will be enough to shut him down. Personally, I think that Bo Ryan is going to give Kaminsky that green light to be the guy that's going to guard Jaleel Okafor. And on the other side of the coin, it's going to be a very hard matchup for Jaleel Okafor on the defensive end. You have a guy like Kaminsky who's more so a Dirk Nowitzki-type player. He can be dominant in the post, but he can take you out behind the three-point line and shoots a very good percentage. He's also great from the foul line. Put that up against his teammate Sam Decker, who I believe stands in around 6'9". So you have two big men who can go out behind the three-point line and cause problems with their sharp outside shooting. I think one of Duke's biggest problems may come in its lack of depth. They have eight scholarship players on the roster, and they suit up ten guys. They really only play eight, though. So you have Jaleel Okafor going up against Kaminsky. He's been known to not be too great on the defensive end. He sometimes takes plays off. He sometimes can be seen jogging down the floor. The guy he's guarding will often beat him down to the end of the floor for a layup or lead to somebody else being open. The fortunate part for him 
is that the TV timeouts this tournament are, I think, two and a half minutes. So there's so many breaks throughout the game, especially when it's under four minutes in the game. Between the timeouts that the coaches call and the TV timeout at the four-minute mark, it seems like the game ends up going a half hour when there's only four minutes left in the game. So that does benefit a guy like Okafor and really everyone else that they're able to get those breaks throughout the game. And Coach K has done a good job of substituting in and out to give him those breaks, putting in guys like Emile Jefferson and Marshall Plumley, who both have size and can rebound the basketball on the defensive glass. If they get into foul trouble, though, that's when the big problems are going to start for the Blue Devils. I think they'll match up Winslow with Decker, and he should be able to guard him pretty well playing in the four spot. The guards for Duke have been great defensively, and Duke has just made a complete 180 turnaround as far as their defense is concerned. Much can be said about rematches that you can never expect to see the same team out on the floor, and if there's any part of Duke's game that has drastically changed since December, I think it's been their defense. Their defense has been shutting teams down in the half court. They've done a great job of three-quarter court pressing or full court pressing and allowing other teams, maybe not so great ball handlers, to have to take the ball down the floor. I think that's definitely something they'll try to do against Wisconsin, who really slows the game down and works through its offenses in the half court better than almost any team in the country. So Duke is going to want to speed that process up a little bit put that pressure on in the full court and force Wisconsin to have maybe not its best ball handler, get the ball over the half court line, which may cause their offense to not get started where they wanted to. And then those guards, Tyus Jones, Quinn Cook, Grayson Allen coming in for that defensive motivation off the bench will create some problems, I believe, for the Wisconsin guards handling the basketball. I think the biggest thing is going to be the battle in the post, whether each team can stay out of foul trouble, because if Wisconsin ends up in foul trouble with Kaminsky or Decker, they're going to have equal problems that Duke would have as well. So if a team can get its opponent's big men in foul trouble, that could be a huge changing point in the game, especially in the first half, where sometimes big men pick up that second foul with six minutes remaining, five minutes remaining in the first half, and a team is able to go on a nice closing run to end that half out. If Wisconsin or Duke might be trailing by four or five, and Kaminsky or Okafor happens to have to sit because of foul trouble, look for that other team to just give it their all, kind of like a power play, if you will, in the NHL, where they feel like they need to make things happen now. And I think that'll be one of the major things that could make or break the offense in the first half for each team. And just like I mentioned, Kaminsky and Decker having that ability to step behind the three-point line and shoot a great percentage and make big shots when it counts, and they'll hit that big three for you. On the opposite side of the coin, you have a guy like Okafor on Duke who is shooting 51% from the free-throw line for the season. The man just is horrendous from the free throw line. And if there's anything lacking in his game besides defense at times, it's 100% from the foul line. He can be compared to Shaq, to Dwight Howard, 
basically the big men that you see in the NBA now or in the past. Those seven-foot guys who are dominant in the post but can't shoot worth a lick at the free throw line. And I have no answers for them. I don't understand how it happens. I really can't put my finger on it. But if the game gets late, look for Wisconsin to play a hack of Jaleel if they have to. They would have no problem putting him at the free throw line, and it could be something that they start doing should they be down with five minutes left in the game, four minutes left in the game. What's the harm if you're already in the bonus to put him on the free throw line and have him make those free throws? I wouldn't trust him to do it. So I could definitely see Wisconsin doing that should they need to if they're down five, six, seven points with under five minutes to go, they might start hacking him. So look for Coach K to combat that, to perhaps substitute Okafor for an offense-defense type routine because Marshall Plumley and Emil Jefferson aren't as bad at the free throw line. They're still not guys you want to have up there, but they can make more free throws than Jaleel Okafor can. You or I can make more free throws than Jaleel Okafor can. I definitely know I can make more than he can. I can't necessarily speak for the listeners, but I am giving you a lot of credit that in 10 free throws, you might be able to give him a run for his money. But as I mentioned before, what's going to be a main part of the game is the defensive side for both teams. And if Duke is able to keep up the defensive pressure that it's had for the past three tournament games, they should be able to control Wisconsin. In the same token, Wisconsin's big men could give Jaleel Okafor problems. In the games when Jaleel Okafor went up against seven-footers, he struggled to get things going offensively. It did lead to a lot of open shots from his guards because teams were double-teaming him and leaving somebody open. But if that ends up happening and guards aren't making those shots when they have them, it could definitely give Duke major frustration and problems if the guards are having an off-shooting night because then Wisconsin knows it'll be able to double-team Jaleel Okafor and wait for him to pass it out and just assume that they're not going to make the shot. If Duke's outside shooters are hot, however, that's going to force Wisconsin to play Jaleel Okafor straight up, and we'll see what the big men can do against the AP Player of the Year. So those are my thoughts on what I think both Duke and Wisconsin need to do in order to take the advantage and perhaps give themselves a much better shot of winning the national championship. As it stands now, the game is at a pick'em for all you Vegas bettors out there. It's take it or leave it, all or nothing, everything's on the floor. We're in for a great basketball game. Unfortunately for me, the loss of Kentucky was the final straw in busting my bracket. I had them playing Duke in the national championship game and winning the national championship to finish the 40-0 season. Looking back now, I really wish I picked Duke to win the championship. But as a Duke fan, there's a part of me that always feels like I'm a little bit of a jinx if I pick them to win the national championship. And there has been times in the past that I have, and they've got bumped in the first and second round and completely screwed me over for the rest of the bracket in the first four days of play. So that was also on my mind. But I'm incredibly excited to have Duke in the national championship. I really hope they can put forth a great performance. They've been playing great basketball. Wisconsin has also been playing great basketball. It might be tough for them to try and avoid that letdown game that you hear about when a team has to get up 
and really play its best in order to beat a number one team or a team they shouldn't necessarily beat. I don't think the Badgers will fall into that category. I think Bo Ryan will definitely have them ready to play. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, playing Kentucky wasn't necessarily something that was on their mind and they wanted revenge from. They were just looking at the national championship game and they got there. So we're going to see two great teams battle it out to bring home a national championship. You know who I'll be rooting for. Y'all know why I'm here. Go Duke. Well, that's going to do it for this recap of the NCAA tournament. As I mentioned, one more game to go, and it's going to be a damn good one. Unfortunately, I was unable to get into anything else going on in the sports world. But fortunately, next week, after recapping the national championship game, there's a ton to talk about throughout sports. We've got Major League Baseball kicking off technically on Sunday night, but really getting underway on Monday. So the season begins. I'll be taking a look up and down each division to let you know which teams I think could possibly make a run at the playoffs and maybe even the World Series. I'll have some discussions about what the NBA playoffs are shaping up to look like, what seeds each team will have, and some of the possible matchups we'll see, as well as the MVP race currently happening in the NBA between three of the best players in the league. I might throw in some NFL news as well, so I'm sure you'll be on the edge of your seat for the remainder of the week to hear that. You could check out more about me and catch previous podcasts at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. That is also my Twitter handle as well if you'd like to follow me on there. If you do go to londonbridge.com, you could also follow this podcast on iTunes or simply search for The Bridge or John Lund on iTunes and subscribe to it there so you can get an immediate update when the next episode is released. You can also listen to this podcast on SoundCloud or download the Stitcher app and listen to it on there as well. Thanks a lot for listening. Much appreciated. Hope I can give you a better idea on what we can look for in Monday night's national championship game. I know I'm excited. I hope you are too. We'll talk more about that next week. And whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve, on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Sports.